Christchurch, New Malden, 8th of September 2019, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Jesus Shows God's Covenant Love, Gracious. Well, I wonder whether you have ever had the experience of discovering that something is much bigger than you ever imagined. So quite a few of you would be in a holiday recently and perhaps you've had this experience where on holiday you're climbing a hill or a mountain and you think you've reached at the top or near the top you think you're on the final straight and you get to the place where you think that will be only to discover that there is another part of the mountain to climb another great big part of it in front of you in other words it's much bigger than you ever imagined have you had that experience i know i have but you know it can happen in other parts of life as well So people having children, for instance, and all the joy and the excitement of that, perhaps slightly disguising just what an enormous responsibility it is. So people discovering that the responsibility, the exhaustion and the heartache of having children is far bigger than they ever imagined. And in many ways, the Bible is the story of God's grace being much bigger than we ever imagined. What does the word grace mean? It's a word we often hear spoken about in church. What does it actually mean? Well, the word grace means the totally undeserved, totally unmerited, totally unbounded love of God himself. The word grace grace can often get used uh, within uh, our lives, and for instance, it's where we get the word gratuity from. Grace is a love that can't be earned. Grace is a love that can't be bought. Grace comes entirely from the selfless motive of the one giving it. And that's why genuine grace can only have its source in God himself. And the word grace occurs within uh, this verse about the covenant love of God that we're thinking about during this sermon series. This uh, phrase that reoccurs at key points throughout the Old Testament and says this, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Now we're looking at these key words and how Jesus fulfilled them during this series. Last week with Tim, we looked at the word compassion and the way in which Jesus showed this quality of God to the full. And this week, we're doing the same with grace. And even before we get to Jesus in the Bible, we see this grace, this undeserved love of God, being gradually revealed to be much more bigger than his people imagined. So the first time that this phrase occurs within the Bible is in the book of Exodus, after the people of Israel sin by worshipping a golden calf, and they sink into all the degradation that always goes along with idolatry. And Israel's sin gets worse and worse throughout the Bible, but that only means that God's grace, God's undeserved love, becomes more and more apparent as well. It doesn't mean that his people don't bear the consequences of their sin, they do. But what it does mean is that there is always a way back. But it means more than that as well. The story of the Bible is also one of constant surprise at those people who are included within God's grace. 
The people of Israel, you see, usually imagine that God's grace is just for them. And they have to be constantly challenged to see that it's far bigger than that. So that's the main point of that famous story of Jonah. I spoke about this story just a few months ago, and I suggested that while we remember the story of Jonah as the story of a big fish, it's actually a story about the bigness of God's love. Jonah is called to preach to the pagan, wicked city of Nineveh, but instead he ran away, didn't he? And at that point of the story, why he ran away is not disclosed to us. But we learn that later on, after he survives his time in the fish, travels to Nineveh, proclaims God's message, the people of Nineveh surprisingly repent, and they're forgiven by God. And Jonah, far from being pleased, is really angry. And Jonah in that story, he quotes these words about God that we're looking at during the series. This is what Jonah says when God spares the city of Nineveh. He's really miffed about it. And he says, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah, in other words, couldn't bear to be part of God's grace being extended to the Ninevites. It completely stuck in his throat to think of these wicked pagans being forgiven and included within God's love. The book of Jonah is really the closest that the Bible gets to satire. And what it's satirizing is how often it's God's own people, symbolized in the story by Jonah, who actually have the biggest problem with God's grace. And particularly with God's grace being extended to include unlikely people. God's grace is much bigger than they ever imagined, and very often God's people don't like it. We see something very similar in this story of Jesus that was read to us earlier. This series, as I say, is built around showing how all of these covenant qualities of God reach their greatest revelation, their greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that's definitely what we see in this passage. So it's early on in Jesus' ministry. He's been preaching around Galilee, and he's been doing amazing things, and then he decides to go back home. He goes back to Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't the place where he was born, of course, that was Bethlehem, but it was the place where he'd been brought up. Many of the people in Nazareth, perhaps as little as around about 100 to 150 people lived there, a lot of them would have known Jesus since he was a little boy. And they would have heard about the amazing things that he'd started to do in other parts of Galilee, like Capernaum. And maybe they had felt a certain measure of pride at this boy from their town who'd come good. And so when Jesus came back to Nazareth on the Sabbath day, it was natural that as he came into the synagogue, he should read the scriptures to them. And Jesus was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he appears to have made a choice about what part of it he read, because we're told that he found this passage and read it out. And the words are really significant. They're drawn from Isaiah 61. And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
These words were written hundreds of years before, and they were understood to speak of the time when God's rescue would come. God's rescue from everything oppressing his people would arrive. And those listening to Jesus in that synagogue at Nazareth on that Sabbath day, they would have been totally desperate for that future day to come. But then as Jesus handed the scroll back to the attendant and sat down, we're told very dramatically that everyone in the synagogue had their eyes on him, Jesus said these amazing words. He said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And those people in the synagogue would have been totally dumbfounded. Now, the version uh, in our Bible that we read earlier, I don't think is terribly well translated because it said this. It said, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And that's a possible translation, but it doesn't make much sense of what then follows when they turn against him. And I think a much better translation is this one, which equally works uh, with the Greek words in that text. They were all astounded by him and couldn't believe the words about grace coming from his lips. You see, with the Romans still in charge, and with God's people, the Jews, being downtrodden and oppressed, they couldn't see any way in which these words about God's grace, God's rescue, had possibly been fulfilled. But it's because they couldn't see how big God's grace was. They assumed that God's grace was simply about him setting them free from the Romans and their emperor. But what Jesus was revealing was that this grace was about a rescue that was actually far deeper. It was about the rescue from sin and evil that was infecting every single one of them just as much as the Romans. And it was this deeper rescue, this deeper act of grace, far bigger, far deeper than anyone that had ever, had ever imagined that had started to be fulfilled with his coming. And the people in that synagogue seemed to have realized that Jesus was challenging them. And they responded by saying, isn't this Joseph's son? It seems that they were really annoyed at this man who they'd known since he was a little boy coming back and presuming to tell them what God's grace was all about. Now, if that was their reaction, then Jesus immediately made it a lot worse. When he arrived back in Nazareth, the people were expecting him to perform similar miracles to those that he'd done elsewhere. But instead, Jesus said to them that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he then proceeded to challenge them further about what God's grace was all about. And the way Jesus did this was referring back to another two stories in the Old Testament. And he said this, there were a lot of widows in the prophet Elijah's time in Israel, but God sent Elijah only to help one, a foreign widow in Zarephath. And similarly, Jesus said, there were lots of people in Israel with leprosy in the prophet Elisha's time soon afterwards. But it was only Naaman the Syrian, another foreigner, who was healed. In many ways, what Jesus was doing was something similar to the story of Jonah. God's grace, Jesus was saying, 
is so much bigger than you think. It's not just about bringing a deeper rescue than you've ever imagined. It's about bringing a wider rescue as well, a rescue that would include far more people than you realize. And of course, it's demonstrated in Jesus' ministry. How is it demonstrated? Well, spending time with prostitutes and tax collectors, healing a Roman centurion's servant, the importance which Jesus gave to women at a time when they were third class, the importance that Jesus gave to children. It was all about showing that with his coming, God's grace, God's abundant, restoring, covenant love had broken into the world on a scale that couldn't possibly be imagined. Jesus' ministry was all about demonstrating that God's grace had burst through all of the old containers that people had previously thought could hold it. And that's why, just as much as the prophet Jonah not liking it, the people of Nazareth didn't like it one bit. That's why we're told that they drove Jesus out of Nazareth, they took him to the side of the hill on which the town had been built, and their plan was to throw him off the cliff. Now, they didn't manage to do that for whatever reason on that occasion, but it's probably the major reason why Jesus was eventually crucified. It's because he was announcing, and more than that, he was embodying God's exuberant, extravagant grace to those who were seen as belonging outside of God's people. And God's existing people, well, sadly, they lacked the faith, they lacked the wisdom, and they lacked the insight to be able to see that. And our calling as a church is quite simply to be the very opposite. To be the very opposite of that attitude that Jonah displayed, to be the very opposite of that attitude that the people of Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown, displayed. Not just to allow God's extravagant grace to continue touching lives, but to recognize that our role is to allow this work to continue within us. That's why we're given God's Holy Spirit. We're called to be a community here at Christchurch that constantly displays God's radical grace. We're called to be a community that constantly welcomes new people amongst us. A community which seeks to show what God's forgiveness and restoration looks like and to demonstrate that it's fully available, available through Jesus Christ. And as important as anything else, we're to be a community that seeks to demonstrate that God's grace is so wide that it is for absolutely everyone. And it's that last one that perhaps often churches fail to deliver on. They can perhaps do well in demonstrating the depth of God's grace, that God uh, sent Jesus to forgive us and uh, to restore us and to take away our sins, but the width of God's grace, that it is for absolutely everyone. That's what churches often struggle to deliver on, because understandably they can become rather club-like, a group for people who are like-minded and normally from the same sort of background. So if we want to be that sort of community, if we really believe in the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ, if we want to be people, what's more, that really represent that grace, rather than people like Jonah 
or the people of Nazareth who were offended by it, what should we do? Well, there are lots of practical ways that we can act on this. One very obvious way, and it might seem uh, fairly trivial, but it's not, is by considering joining our welcoming team outside the doors of this church on a Sunday morning. Now, we started this when we introduced those electronic doors uh, to try and make sure that this church is accessible as possible. We will also have to make sure that children don't escape afterwards, so it's a bit of a uh, balance between those two things. But having people outside this building, welcoming people, this morning it was Ros Green and Eliza, is absolutely crucial. The vision is that people are made welcome to this church before they even step into the building. And that's crucial in its theological significance. Churches can be quite welcoming places once people have actually come in and sort of joined them. But if we're really going to display the powerful, transforming grace of God, we're going to be out there. Now, it's only a step outside the door, admittedly. But it's significant and it's crucial. And it does display something. People at the bus stop over the road wonder what's going on when this church is a place that is clearly trying to welcome people so strongly. Anna Larkin is the one who coordinates the welcoming, and it only needs people to come 15 or so minutes early, and as I say, it does make a massive difference. And if we had enough people doing it, people wouldn't have to do it that often, but it does make a massive difference. So if you do feel, if you're not already involved on the sound desk or singing or playing or whatever, do consider doing that. It doesn't mean you have to be an over-the-top extrovert. In fact, it's probably good that not all the people on the door are over-the-top extroverts. But a smile and a welcome into this church will make a massive difference. That's one very practical application. It might seem trivial, but actually if we did that as well as I'd like it to be done, I think it would be really transforming here at Christchurch. Another practical way is chatting to people that you don't know in the lounge afterwards as we enjoy refreshments. And it's very easy and in some ways totally understandable that we talk to people that we already know. It's nice to see them quite often if we haven't seen them for a week or so. That's totally understandable. But actually, if we're going to be a church that really is committed to displaying God's extravagant, generous grace... That means we will be constantly seeking to make as many people as possible feel as at home as possible. Helen Coston is someone that we don't see so often these days at Christchurch because of the brain tumour that very sadly uh, she developed some years ago. Helen wasn't expected to live very long at all, but actually has uh, lived for a number of years now since that brain tumour developed. When Helen first uh, got ill... I found it remarkable how many people from this 9.30 service came and asked me how she was doing. And they weren't just asking about someone they didn't know, they were asking about someone they clearly did know really quite well. And I was very surprised uh, and taken aback at this because they were people whose children were a very different age from Helen's. And generally, people at this 9.30 service who know other people well, quite often it's because their children are roughly the same sort of age. I was intrigued at why so many people clearly knew Helen really well. And it was because, unbeknown to me at that point, Helen was totally brilliant at being friendly to people that she didn't know in the lounge after this 9.30 service. 
She was someone who it came very naturally towards. I don't think it was something she had many sort of nerves about, so it was a sort of natural strength. But she'd go up and she'd meet people, she'd ask who they were, and as I say, I only really discovered this, I only discovered it completely, after Helen very sadly got so ill. But it had clearly made a very big impact. There were people at this church who felt more welcome because of Helen's interaction with them. There are other people who play a similar role. Hugh Griffiths, who is away this Sunday, I think does something very similar. But Helen had realized, I believe, that it was a vital way of displaying what God is all about, displaying God's generous, inclusive grace. So another practical thing we could think about. Talking to our friends, uh, that's uh, clearly the important thing to do but perhaps also making a bit of time to talk to others as well. There are actually dozens of ways way here at Christchurch that we can be part of God's grace. Helping out with the night shelter, which a number of you have done during the winter months when we welcome homeless people into Christchurch, and it's vital that they receive a message of welcome which embodies God's grace. The community cafe on Monday and Tuesday mornings that we only started a few months ago with its listening service. That's another way that we can display, embody, and join in the work of God's grace. Grapevine, our lunch club. Sarah's here this morning. She's going to jump out an aeroplane in a few weeks' time for another great cause. But Sarah's the one who's in charge of Grapevine, our lunch club. And if there is one part of Christchurch that displays God's abundant grace in a really powerful way, it's Grapevine. And uh, everyone is welcome to be part of that. So have a chat with Sarah if you're interested in being part of that. Next week, I hope it will be this Sunday, but it's actually going to be next Sunday, we're going to open our new room for our tiddlywinks. The Orchard Room has undergone a facelift over the last uh, two or three weeks. We've spent a good amount of money on it. We've sought to demonstrate it in a way that uh, tries to show that our children are so important to this church, they couldn't be more uh, important in their status. And that's all part of trying to demonstrate the width of God's amazing grace. But of course, it's not just here at Christchurch that we're called to do this. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, then we're called to try and demonstrate God's grace in every single part of our lives. We're called to try and do it in our work lives, particularly our relationships with colleagues, uh, with people that we work with, particularly when they're difficult and drive us around the bend. We're called to do it in our relationships, with our neighbours, within our family lives, and so on. The calling of those who belong to Jesus Christ is to witness to him. And the major way that we witness to Jesus Christ is how we live our lives. It's what we demonstrate about the reality of God by the way in which we live. And what we're called to do is to demonstrate that grace of God. And we never more demonstrate that grace of God, that grace of God that Jesus both proclaimed and embodied, than when people are surprised by that grace. When people who didn't think that they were included actually are. That's when we most powerfully demonstrate what God is all about. God's grace is deeper than most people have ever imagined. There are stacks of people who feel they can't be forgiven for things they've done in their lives. I was talking to someone just uh, a few uh, weeks ago over the summer who said, surely God can't forgive me 
for what I've done uh, in my life. And the message was, well, yes, he can. God's grace is deeper than most people have ever imagined, and God's grace is wider than most people imagined as well. And our calling, if we want to be serious about being disciples of Jesus Christ, is with all our flaws and all our imperfections to demonstrate that grace that has found us and is there to find everyone within God's world.